The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. Hello, everyone. We are very excited to be with you today to talk about getting to know students and families, a foundational teaching and learning practice that is absolutely critical when working with students of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, including our focus for this discussion, which is refugee children and families. Making time throughout the school year to get to know our students and their families is at the heart of culturally relevant, responsive, and sustaining pedagogies. It is a vital part of social and emotional learning for both educators and students, and it is the bedrock of trauma-informed practice and holistic pedagogy not to mention an essential first step if we are to effectively scaffold and differentiate our instruction as we desire to do. But before we get any, into any of this why or the how of getting to know refugee students and families, let me introduce myself and my esteemed panelists. I am Julie Casper, a National Board Certified Teacher and Program Manager for the Refugee Educator Academy at the Center for Learning and Practice. I have worked with resettled refugee and immigrant children, youth, and families for about 20 years across a variety of learning contexts, and I've had the great privilege of supporting the professional learning and instructional and programmatic efforts of refugee educators across the nation and worldwide. With me today are three of these incredible educators. Marisa Windmill, hello Marisa. Marisa is a doctoral candidate, an equity and social justice advocate, and a national board certified teacher with almost three decades of teaching from the Philippines to the US. She currently teaches English language learner and refugee students at the Kent School District. She also serves as Washington State's Professional Educators Standards Board as a board member and as a founding member of the Kent Educators of Color Network. Henry Nzeimana is an educator and child protection specialist with 12 years international experience in program management, focusing on refugee children, internally displaced children, and children affected by armed conflicts and humanitarian emergencies. Hello, Henry, welcome. Hello, Avira, thank you. He worked as a teacher of English as a foreign language in Burundi and child protection program manager with INGOs, including UNICEF, in several African countries. He is a multilingual human rights and humanitarian advocate who currently serves as program manager and language support specialist with the Tucson Unified School District Refugee Student Services. Hi, Krista, welcome. Krista Schwager, our third panelist, is a parent, an educator, and a family advocate. After serving as a linguist and Middle East North Africa analyst in the U.S. Navy, she became an educator and worked in both public and private schools in several U.S. states and in Saudi Arabia. She first found her passion for family advocacy while working as a gifted education specialist. She currently serves as the Special Liaison for Immigrant and Refugee Families for Cartwright Elementary School District in Phoenix, Arizona. Each of these amazing individuals will speak today from their own personal and professional experience, not as school, district, or organizational representatives. They are here to share their knowledge with you, which we hope will inspire your continued local and regional efforts to support refugee and immigrant students in your school or district. So let's get into it. Thank you so much for being here today and for being open to sharing your perspectives with our viewers. 
I want to start with a very direct and perhaps kind of simple question for each of you in turn. Um, I thought it would be good to start by talking about what you do personally or individually to get to know the diverse refugee students and families that you serve in your local context. What are two or three strategies or approaches you take to get to know your learners' backgrounds, their talents, their interests, their needs, their aspirations, everything about them? Marisa, let's start with you. Could you please share what you do within your classroom and your school to get to know each of your students? Of course. Um, well, it's when our students come to our school, uh, the first time we met them is the first day of school or whenever they come in. So we have family liaisons and um, enrollment uh, staff who assist them. But when they come to my classroom, the first thing that I do is smile. I give them my biggest smile and welcome them in the classroom. And if I know how to speak their language, I would say a phrase to welcome them in their language. Uh, and then I ask four questions. The first four questions that I, I ask my students are, what's your name? Um, what country are you from and in what language? What gives you joy? And what's your biggest dream? Um, because from asking that, those questions, I get to know what I can do in my classroom. I always put uh, my students at the heart of my instruction. So it's very important for me to know who they are. Um, other things that I do, I would say um, once I get to know them, I would I always ask them to tell about them. So every day they would be writing uh, and I teach them how to use this technology so that they can they can enjoy writing. And although it's hard for them to, to write, in English, I make sure that I provide the tools that they can use to access um, information. And so we have translator, but then they enjoy it because they have technology. So I, I utilize and leverage um, the, the tools that I have access. And if I don't have access to technology, I make sure that I do. And briefly, that's what I would say just um, some some things that I do initially, but there are more. And I'll be happy to share with them later. Marisa, thank you. That's wonderful. I love how you centered joy so clearly in your response. You start with a smile. You ask the students what brings them joy. And you find ways to help them enjoy learning, even, even in a complex situation um, through technologies and other supports. Fantastic. Thank you so much for getting us started in this conversation. Henry, I want to turn to you because you've worked both in the classroom and at the district level. So thinking about your work, Henry, what do you do to make sure that you know each of the students that you're supporting individually and that you know their families? And also, what do you do to make sure that at the district level, you have a clear understanding of who all the refugees are within your district um, and your community? Uh, thank you, Julie, uh, for the question. Uh, as a district, sorry, as TUSD Refugee Student Services Department, we work with a team of uh, language support specialists and uh, student success specialists. And our very first contact with students and parents is during the initial student registration when they come in the United States. 
we get the chance to meet with them and register them for schools. We get to know their prior educational background, the language they speak at home. Some of the stories they faced before coming here that we need to know so that we can support them uh, reintegrate better in their schools and in communities. After the initial uh, student registration, we also do uh, community follow-up to see if the families are well resettled, if they do have any issues regarding like access to technology or any other issue that may cause the students not to attend classrooms. We do offer direct uh, telephone calls to parents to keep them engaged and get the necessary information they need for supporting their children education. We continue meeting them during the, when they are already registered to meet them in the classroom and offer them academic support because as a new refugee coming in, they face a lot of challenges in terms of languages, in terms of understanding the American educational system. So we keep in touch with them in the classroom to ensure that they are better off when they sit in the classroom, how to engage with teachers, how to get around the schools and know who is who in the school so that they can feel uh, support in, in when they work. At the district level, uh, we do uh, conduct like uh, refugee needs assessment. Uh, currently, we did uh, one of the kind of largest refugee needs assessment where we collected a lot of information regarding the needs refugees have in their schools, but also some of the challenges they may face when they come to the United States that may hamper their social integration. And I think that was also another biggest way to know who they are, what they face as challenges, and how we as a district, we can support them. Henry, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate the team approach that you are part of, that your district takes and that you contribute to, and that sustained engagement, right? So not just uh, making assumptions about what you know from the first interaction, but continuing to engage and learn about the family over time and check in with them. Thank you so much for sharing all of those strategies. Krista, I wanna to turn to you now and learn more about what you do to get to know the refugee students and families in your district. Um, you've taken on a, a special assignment, teacher on a special assignment this year that is focused on this specifically. And so what are some of the strategies you've used to get to know who the refugee students are in your district and also to help support teachers who are trying to better know and work with the families and students in their classrooms? Thanks, Julie. Um, so. My position is a brand new position. Um, it's, you know, we always say in education, when you know better, you do better. So this is the first year um, my district has had this position um, offering support specifically for refugees and immigrants. So really, it's just me <laughs> right now. So the main thing I'm doing is I'm piggybacking on our existing services. Um, we know how important it is to have a an initial, true, genuine welcome to make the family feel comfortable um, and make sure they have what they need when they first come to your district. Our district does local registrations, so there's no centralized lo location for registration. Um, they come to, so the families can be coming into any one of our 22 schools. So I've developed partnerships with the, the secretaries. Um, 
to give them kind of toolkits so that they know that the families are going to have a follow-up call um, by me or a colleague that speaks their language um, through the language line in their home language uh, within 24 hours to make sure that they have what they need. So I start with a needs assessment. Um, the very first thing I do, though, is I welcome them. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes the families, they, they get in and... Um, all of a sudden you realize they've already been in your district for a few weeks or a couple months. And uh, so I, I also use the student information system to make sure that I'm catching families that come in and I give them that initial welcome, we're happy you're here, um, and just to extend that, that warmth to them. And then we get down to the nitty gritty, um, see what they need for physical resources. We have a food pantry in our district, so we have some things that can be wraparound services, get those initial things going. Um, and then as, as I get to know the family a little bit better, then I ask, I ask questions like, what are your hopes and dreams for your children? So things where, uh, we all have in common. So they, you know, all parents want better for their children. Um, so they, they are always welcome to share that. They, they love it. Um, a lot of the, the parents are very excited about the opportunities they have for education here. Um, and so just, just kind of trying to develop that initial parent partnership and then checking in throughout the year, supporting the teachers um, proactively. And a big one is also the communication. So we're trying to get trying to get two-way communication going. A lot of our, our outreach is, you know, I've, I had a colleague say that parent engagement is not, we're not doing, um, we're not, family engagement is not about, you know, family engagement at the parent, it's with the parent. So some of the outreach is good, but if you can build on it so that it's reciprocated and someone can reach out and say when they need help, that's what we're trying to establish. So that's, that's, that are, those are the big things. Wow, Krista, thank you so much. Um, that warm welcome is something that resonated through all three of your responses. Clearly creating that welcoming, safe environment is really important. I also heard all three of you talking about language access and making sure that there are language supports. And then there was also discussion of needs assessment and finding out both the needs and the aspirations of the students and families so that you can address those. Um, I think it would be great to talk about each of those in turn. Maybe let's start with um, this welcome, this idea of welcome. So, and any of you can answer, uh, this is an open question to the three of you. If there were one piece of advice you could give a, a new teacher or a new educator, school leader, working with refugee families to create a more welcoming atmosphere, uh, what would you advise them? How do we create a warm welcome for resettled refugees? I would say, you know, the physical things, the most visible things that uh, families could see is a symbol. So just looking at a symbol, I post uh, a welcome in different languages in front of my room. Um, I also make sure that uh, we have people that they can connect with when it comes to like if they want to talk. But I always open an invitation to, to meet with families. Uh, I use talking points so I can access them. Uh, I can share with them information about myself, where I am from, and to give a little bit of introduction about my experience because I feel like my students really enjoy being in my classroom because we have that shared experience. I tell them that when I was in high school, I didn't speak English. I didn't tell them that it was hard, but you know what? 
we can do it. Uh, we can succeed because uh, we have everything that we, we you know, that we, we are provided with everything here. We can see, we have both hands, and even people without, you know, their vision, they can succeed. And so I just, you know, inspiring them, knowing them that, letting them know that I believe them, knowing that um, success is hard, but with, you know, persistence, resilience, and resources that I can provide uh, would help them thrive in my classroom. And so that's why I always ask families when I meet with them, this pandemic was hard because I wasn't able to see them in person, but at least I was able to have a virtual home visit. I was able to meet even the little sisters and the little brothers and um, asking them about the dreams, even the little sisters' dreams <laughs> and the aspirations of the entire family. And it's so great to to know that our families have these aspirations, that they believe that they're here and with my help and the resources that we have available for them uh, could help them thrive. And so making yourself, you know, make yourself available. Let them know that you believe in them and you are ready to support them um, with their dreams. And when you don't have the resources that are available, reach out. Like, you know, break boundaries. <laughs> Find the resources that are not readily available for, for our students because they are limited. But if we uh, connect with organizations around us, there's plenty. In fact, one of the things that I did in my school is I started Girls Who Code. This is, uh, this is led by our refugee students. And we were able to connect them to Facebook, to Microsoft. And they were able to establish connection and have scholarships. And now I have so many students in my Girls Who Code who, who are refugee students. And I'm telling you, they, these girls have bigger dreams. And if we connect them to, to resources, they will thrive. A couple different things that um, Marissa said, I wanted to, to build on. Um, when you said working with the whole family, that's been a, that's been a huge philosophy. I think it's just a, it, it's just a game changer. Um, and even as teachers realize uh, when you have a few different students, at least in our district, we have maybe a couple different students who um, speak a language other than English and Spanish. Most of our students speak Spanish at home in our district. Um, and our district, I can say, we do a really good job with those kids, making sure the families get support services, um, equitable language services, everything like that. Um, but as our, our other refugee population grows and our, our next most popular language is Swahili, and then it goes to Burmese, um, and then Malay, and then down from there, these kids need whole family services. Um, and as a teacher, when you have, you know, 30 kiddos in your elementary school classroom and you're trying to make those, pro you're trying to make those proactive, positive calls on, uh, when they, when they come to your, when you're coming to your class and it's just really hard to manage through a second language, um, it's, it's about building a team and it's about working together to make sure that you can still do that. Um, so one of the things I found that, that helps is connecting teachers Maybe one of the kids in the family is has a you know is in third grade, and the other one is at the middle school next door. 
And then maybe there's another one that's in high school, another kinder baby, or somebody that's just about to start school. What I try to do is I try to put the teachers together. So we'll connect the teachers over email, connect them virtually, because maybe the third grade teacher says, we're having a real problem with engagement or attendance or something's going on. And when we look into it, it's really something going on at home that affects the entire family. So when you can connect the teachers and problem solve as a team, um, it's, it, it really helps everybody out. And then there's a, like Marissa said, you know, looking at the whole family for a whole family solution and building on that. We always talk about working with the whole child. And I think the whole family in this instance is, is very big because I know a lot of the kids that you all have worked with, they come in with such, such trauma and such social emotional needs, for instance, that if, if a teacher's asking, well, I'm, I'm frustrated because I'm not getting one year's growth yet out of this child, and that's, you know, that's where they're at, um, sometimes it helps to have a problem-solving team come together to get the bigger picture so the teacher can understand, oh, these folks just got evicted, or the dad just lost their job, they just got resettled here, they're dealing with some other things that if we can put in place, then we'll get to those questions about one year's growth or whatever. So like Marissa said, working as a team together. Um, another thing I wanted to say, Marissa, when you were talking in your introduction was about learning phrases in home languages. That's powerful. I love that as part of a welcoming community. And the, the kids love to laugh at me. If I try to, you know, I, I try to say hello and, and good afternoon in Swahili, the kids, even the middle school kids will giggle at me and then they relax. And the parents, their eyes just light up. They're just light up. So I think that there really is nothing more welcoming than even if you learn that, that one phrase. I think it also shows the kids that you're willing to take a risk if I'm asking them to take that risk in English, it helps as a teacher to, to, to be out there and try to take that risk in Swahili and mangle it, but I'm trying and it's, it's, it's modeling that, I think, that growth. Yeah, fabulous. Go ahead, Henry, yeah. Right. I'd like to add to what Krista and Marisa just said to emphasize the need for teachers to learn about their students and the families where they come from. I've seen teachers who really do very good practices of learning how to say the names of the students in their local languages. And they are super excited to see that uh, what I could call it is a stranger can pronounce their names in, in Kirundi, in Kinyarwanda. Uh, other teachers have been uh, trying to post like maps where different students come from and the languages they do speak. And they will also post uh, the different like greetings in different languages. The students can see that their language, the way they greet people is there here in the United States. And it's super excited to know that they can greet and learn how other people greet in the other languages. Other teachers also encourage like uh, student peer peer support, like pairing a new student with an older one who's been in the school. And they'll be like their buddies helping them to show uh, where, where are things the school, who to contact when they need support. And that works better because uh, children can help children. They really enjoy being helped by their peer students rather than an adult person. 
And I also would encourage probably that teachers in other school uh, staff to, to learn who else is in the community. We do have a good number of community-based organizations, faith-based organizations who have been here in the United States for quite longer. And they do know the ways in the United States and teachers and administrators, they know about those uh, support networks. They can get a wealth of information about the students they teach in the classroom. And as a department, the best welcome we give to the students and the parents is our presence. You know that when you come in a country for the first time, it's like a fish out of water. They don't know where, who is who, where is what. And our very presence, knowing that there is someone who speaks their language, someone who comes from the, the same country, who knows the realities of where we are from, it really makes like feel, oh yeah, we are here, we are in a family. We are people who care for us. And we also support the teachers in the first classroom uh, time. We are in the classroom to make sure that they can communicate with students and we do interpretation and translation for the students to be able to translate their fears, their concerns, but also what they would like to get in the classroom. So we are present in the classroom and also the community to make sure that we help the reintegration of, of students and families, both in the communities, but also in the classroom. Brilliant. That idea of presence is so, so important for everything that we do as educators, right? Being present, being with, being in relation with people, seeing people fully and wholly, welcoming them into our spaces. I loved that each of you shared very concrete strategies that educators can use to create a more welcoming space. And you shared strategies at all different levels. So at the individual level, you know, you can you can use greetings and you can use signs and you can ask the students about their interests. And then at the school level, what you can do and in the community level. And when you talked about the whole family, Krista, I think that's so important for us to think about this. And Henry, you brought in the community. So if we think about the whole child and the whole family and the whole community, we start to get this very rich and beautiful and layered and textured holistic picture of what learning is. Learning is being in relation with others, right? And so I think as we continue to talk about getting to know students and families, we can hold all of that in mind. One of the things that each of you brought up again, and so we need to go there because I know it's a challenge that educators face, is language. The language barrier, as people call it, right? or the language and culture barrier. So the three of you have been successful in overcoming these barriers. Um, and, and Henry, you have the advantage of being from the countries of some of your students, sharing their languages directly, but there are other tools. You mentioned talking points, Marisa. Um, so I'd love to hear more about what language resources you use to get to know more about your students and families, particularly when they've arrived and they don't yet speak English, but they speak all of these other beautiful languages. How do you tap into their knowledge and how do you connect with them across those language barriers? Um, Krista, I, I think you have something you want to add. So let's start with you and then we can pop around the group again. It, it goes it goes right back and it can roll right back into the language too. I was going to say something at a very basic level that I was blown away by when I first got this position was 
we know that we need to identify the children. We know that we need to know what their needs are. But at the most basic level, to identify them at the district level as a refugee, as an immigrant, what, what languages they do speak and making sure that that's an accurate thing because it, it has to do with the intake process. And then it has to do with the secretary's understanding and, and the admin folks understanding what are we using this information for. It is very important. It does go to our communication um, when we first started this support, people were surprised at how many immigrants we had. And when I say people, I mean people all the way up to the superintendent and to our board. So we have, we have about 17,000 kids in our district. Um, we have about 900 kids that they are in the first three years of being here in the United States. Um, almost 200 of them don't speak English or Spanish. So those are all kids that have not currently received things in their home languages for a long time, and we're trying to fix that now that we know. Um, but just as, as a basic level, making sure that when, when we're talking about knowing our children, knowing where they are from, it's, it, they may speak Spanish, but a Spanish speaker coming from, you know, coming from Honduras um, is it's different than a Spanish speaker maybe that that speaks Spanish and has been here for a couple generations and their their family is is more well settled, so just to see what their needs are. Um, but the identification is powerful, and I'd I'd suggest any any district or any school that's wanting to really help these kids, um, don't assume that even your board or your superintendent or your assistant soups or down to the teacher level really know what our population is. I didn't. I worked as a gifted resource teacher in my district for five years before moving to this position. I had no idea that we had so many kids that spoke Swahili. I had no, I had no idea walking through the hallways that I might have six different languages around me. So I, I didn't know. So just, just going with that. And then the language tools we use, we use language line. Um, like Marissa had shouted out, like uh, talking points. A lot of the teachers will use talking points or Google Translate is, is your friend. Um, I just finished piloting a, a program for our school called School Connects. Um, that's a two-way uh, communication program similar to Facebook, but it doesn't have comments and it's, um, it's internal. Um, so those are the ones that we use right now. And, home, you know, home visits and calls. Uh, for our our side, um, the main challenge that I see with language lines with majority of our refugee uh, communities is access itself to to the language tools. Uh, majority of them don't have the devices that can support the communication as we would like to. Uh, some of them, if you like, you post a video on on YouTube or or any other platform. Some of them uh, don't have those opportunities to to get to know what is posted there. And the best way we do it is using the best device they use here, which is WhatsApp. Every parent, every student is on WhatsApp. It's easy for them to use. You can communicate by text messages. You can also go on video. Some of them have FaceTime, which is also a great uh, tool to use. And we can communicate directly to the students using the language they understand. 
and sometimes doing translations of messages uh, from English to the different languages they speak, because we we understand that may be the best way to reach majority of uh, refugee parents and students. Online communication is great. We appreciate that, but it's not most of the time accessible to majority of refugee uh, parents and the students. And some of them may not even have time to really go on WhatsApp on YouTube, check for videos, listen to them because of very tight work schedule. So when we do it direct with them on WhatsApp or direct telephone call or if a family visit, we reach them better and easier than sending out an online mass communication. In my culture, we say that in everyone, there is no one. When you don't personalize a message or an invitation, to me, it's not directed to me. It's, it's for everyone and I can't skip that. That is fine. But if you come to my house and say, Henry, I'd like you to be at my home or to this party because I value your presence you are very good presence, a very good person to have in my party. I feel, oh, I am valued. I have to be there because that person really cares about me. I have to care about him. But if you send a mass communication invitation, I can say, okay, I don't have time, but I know Julie will be there. I know Krista will be there. I don't have to be there, that's fine. So personalizing information, personalizing messages and direct contact has worked better for us than online mass communication that we use, we tend to use so often. Uh, Henry, uh, I think you brought up a really important point because personalizing is really an important uh, practice in the classroom. We need to personalize our instruction because if we, if we deliver instruction that is for all, it doesn't work most of the time. So you have to individualize and really getting to know our students individual level, uh, really asking them, what do you do? <laughs> so when I do my suede journal writing, I really personalize the question. So like, who did you talk to during the weekend? Uh, what did you uh, prepare for your mother for Mother's Day? Something that's really personalized. Uh, so that you can get to know them and really personalize the instruction and examples that you give because that's how we engage our students. I would say my students love to be in the classroom <laughs> because we talk about them. Uh, examples that I use in my classroom are about them. I don't talk about people that are <laughs> outside the classroom, but I always name them. So, for example, I would say, oh, Dr. Abilando will be our, you know, next next speaker. Okay, um, um, attorney uh, Reina Lopez will be the next person or doing the second paragraph and really um, giving them the vision, providing them with a vision. Um, so once I get to know their, their dream, I address them as if they are already that person because it, helped them, it helps them to really think of, of the profession. So like at the beginning of the year, <laughs> they would... Some of them wouldn't have a specific dream of what they want, but I asked them what they're interested in. And then eventually when they leave after a year, they already have this clear goal of what they want. And so really individualizing things and leading them to things that they would like to do in the future is critical. 
And I love that I'm able to do that with my students because I, you know, I can help them uh, see themselves in the, in, in the future. At the end of the year, I always ask them uh, to deliver a speech as if they are already the person that they want to be. So their I story, as if they're a speaker in a, in a graduation, they're the guest speaker. And I think that's powerful because um, we see them as valuable part of our uh, community and we help them also uh, envision a, a positive future for them. And they know that I believe them and cheer for them. So that's really important to individualize. Thanks, Fabulous. What, what I hear you all speaking to is some of what we can read in the research and the literature around culturally relevant and responsive and sustaining pedagogies, right? That really center the students and their families' experiences, their knowledge. And so I just want to turn to that question of funds of knowledge for a moment um, and ask each of you to share a little bit. We At the beginning, you were talking about needs assessments. And I think Needs assessments are tools that most teachers and most schools have in place. Um, perhaps not perfectly, Krista, as you pointed out. Uh, sometimes we don't really know who our students are, what their needs are. But um, more or less, most schools and districts have some of these tools in place to find out what the families need, what the students need. What I think we have less in place are sort of talent and aspiration assessments, what you were speaking to, Marisa, and what you were speaking to, Henry, as well, when you said everyone is is no one in a sense, right? That we need to see each individual person and be present and, and celebrate each individual person. So I'm wondering if you would just share for a moment through the strategies that you use to get to know your students, what are some of the funds of knowledge, the talents, the languages, the cultures, the skills, the assets that your students and your families bring to your school and your district. Let's just celebrate for a moment what we know about our students. What do these refugee students bring to our communities? I would like to start that. <laughs> um, I would uh, speak highly of my students' resiliency. Um, during the pandemic, I was my students were there attending classes, uh, they're there every day. And, you know, um, I would say our entire state or nation was really uh, sad about what happened to our education. We stopped, but it didn't stop my students' education. I leveraged my, my technology skills. I piloted our Microsoft Teams, and although our district did not call uh, to come back right away, I was meeting with my students and they were there. They didn't, my students don't complain. <laughs> and I think it's, it's because uh, they know that I value them. They know that I know that it's important for them to learn. And so they, they don't complain about it. They are willing to learn. They are interested in doing things because they know the importance of engaging and advancing and learning. And so things that I do there, um, resiliency is an important, important, uh, I would say soft skill that our, my students develop and are continuously developing. And that's also the focus of my instruction in my, I don't, Krista, you mentioned about the growth, you know, uh, the, the education, the gap, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's not important because for me, if I can develop my students' passion for learning, they will get it. I had a student who were who was in my class and she only had third three years of education in Kenya. 
She came to my class, but I believed in her. I recommended her for scholarship. I I provided resources where she could access. And you know what? She's graduating right now, and she's, she's accepted at the University of Washington. If I... Uh, if I had the assumption that because she only had third grade education and she couldn't do things and I couldn't recommend her, then that would have thwarted her dreams. But I fueled her dream. I provided the things that she needs in order for, for her to succeed. And I think that's really important. Building that resiliency, uh, um, developing their their. Um, Self-efficacy is really important. Uh, show them resources how they can do it. I, I taught them how to use uh, goal setting. I show them examples of what I do <laughs> in in my own personal uh, you know life, uh, set, getting the to do list and making sure that I accomplish them, and just you know building this resiliency and goal setting and persisting. I think those are the things that that. Um, help my students in, in, in or I would say uh, thriving in pandemic, during the pandemic. Marisa, I just want to ask you a question about that. Uh, you started by saying your students are very resilient and then you shared some ways that you helped to build that resilience further. Can you say a little more about where your students are from and how do you know that they're resilient? Like what is it about your students that that you've learned and how did you learn that about them? Obviously you saw a strength and you're building upon that strength. How did you know that strength was there? Tell us a little more about the funds of knowledge that you were able to get to know that you were able to access and, and then build upon in your classroom. Uh, well, I do have, um, it's very diverse. I have some, I would say uh, majority or 50% plus are, um, Hispanics or Latino students, and uh, although they are Latino, they you know they're from Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, and I know their stories. So like at the beginning, I I really make sure that I know their stories. Like how did you? So just 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 teaching them the language, using the the five W's. Who did you come with? Where are you from? And so like little details each time gives me that um, that story about them. And I know that from that story, I learned something about them. Oh, so you were, you're the first in the family and you're the one who's translating for your family. So that, that she, that asset already, that, wow, that interaction that you could lead your family in, in transacting, you know, business or something, uh, that's, that's a skill. Um, navigational skill. I know that they can help out. So that's a skill. That's an asset that our students are bringing. I would say if I, I don't know, if I bring some students from here, from the U.S. to Vietnam, I'm not sure how they would pair with, you know, with our students. And so that's always an example that I give them. I said, you know what, you already when they say, I don't know how to speak English, I said, oh, you just told me you don't know how to speak English. That's English. So you speak, you speak your first language and then now you're speaking English. And so just, you know, knowing that they have that skill already and using that asset communication to help them realize that, oh yeah, I have 
asset. I have linguistic asset. I have navigational asset. I have this cultural asset that I can bring. Um, and I just told them today, I said, you know what? I would like to know you more because you know things that I don't know. It doesn't mean that, you know, because I'm a teacher, I know everything. I can learn from you and you can, you can, you can teach me a lot of things. Um, and so just telling them that you have your first thing. And I noticed that in my I, seniors, I teach uh, also advisory uh, seniors. And I noticed that in your, in their resume, they don't include their linguistic skills. So did you just tell me that you, you speak four languages and you don't have that on your resume? And you said you're outstanding um, employee of your, of uh, your, in, in the workplace and you didn't say that? That's tenacity, that's resilience, that's work ethic, and you didn't say that. Well, because our form here or our resume, we are so um, attuned to the things that, okay, you have to be valedictorian or you have to do this. But those are not the only assets that we have. Those are, I would say, things that were framed for, <laughs> for non-ELL uh, students. We should see our students from an asset perspective because they are bringing so much. Uh, they can navigate the system and just providing them tools and they know. Like I have a student, it's her second year, and I, I re recommended her to be as a Senate, um, page, a student page to, to learn the, the legal system, um, legislat legislative system in Washington. And you know what? She got in. And you know, if we don't recognize those assets, they are very, they are thirsty for knowledge. And if you provide those, they can navigate. She was so successful in, in being a page, a student page. And you know, if we are looking out, when we look at our students from that perspective, we can get a lot of things from them. We can help diversify our system so that there are no bias. I mean, if we can bring all these perspectives together, It'll help us to be more um, culturally relevant and enriched. I wanted to say something also. Um, Marissa had brought up the language, the language strengths. Um, this this spring, I know a lot of I know a lot of teachers in Arizona, all over the place, are giving language proficiency tests. In Arizona, it's called the Azela. And I know that uh, before I administered the Azela to groups of kids, I try to introduce it by saying you know, do you guys know why you're taking this test? And a lot of them would say, because we're not good in English, because we're... I said, no, I said, because this, the only people that get to take this test are people that know at least two languages. This is telling me that you guys have at least another language that you know fluently. You're still working on English. We want to see where you're at with the English part of it. But going back to the idea of, of a strength-based lens, um, a lot of the kids... Like like Marissa said, you, they could speak three languages, four languages. They don't think of it as an asset until they're completely proficient in English, which is which is 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 not not the right. Uh, we don't want them to feel like that. I mean, we want to recognize it as a strength, as an asset, as something they're bringing. I also was thinking um, when I worked as a gifted resource teacher. Um, making sure that your teacher lens is not limited to folks that are only proficient in English. You're looking at those skills that you see in the classroom. Um, you're looking at, at that uh, creative problem solving. 
Um, and there's, there's ways to show that that are not dependent on language so that the kids can, can bring their strengths to the classroom. I know as a grown-up, I would not like a job where I had to go every single day and work on only the things that I was not good at yet, you know, and only the things that I was working on getting better at. Um, we always want to have something where I can, I can at least do something that I feel like a rock star while I'm working on the other stuff. Um, and so I think that as a teacher, the, the big part in really working hard to identify and look at and find uh, the passions and strengths of the children is that it, it just makes the teaching part a lot easier because they're fired up, you know, just like adults. They were just fired up by, by doing what we're passionate about and being able to build on our strengths. But um, language, I do feel, like Marissa said, it's a, it's a big thing that we overlook as a strength. Um, because their their wiring is amazing, knowing us knowing a, another language like that and working in English, and I, I think it's important also for their classmates to understand that. So I do think it's an important way to somehow find a way to introduce to the class, um, in a strength based way of introducing it that that we have kids in here that know five other languages. Some of our kids in here, they speak Swahili, they speak Kenyan, they, they, they speak Spanish, they speak this, they speak that. Um, and then the kids start looking around and they, they see it as a strength. So I think that, that is an important lens, a way to shift the lens a little bit. Krista, I don't know if your school also has different languages, but one thing that I did was partner my Yale students, newcomers, to word languages teachers. And so they were experts in the classroom. And you know what? That experience for them, talking with, with the proficient, you know, with the English, with English speakers and then proficient in Spanish or French and partnering. And I, these are Ivy students. They feel so empowered afterwards and they gain friends and they were recognized in the school. And so those kind of um, strategies of inclusion, of equity is, you know, it's really important to, to recognize that, hey, there are programs that we can really leverage the cultural assets of our students. You know, the, the IB students, <laughs> after the experience, they also said, oh my goodness, I feel, I feel that this is the most in, you know, the most relevant experience that they had because they, ne they haven't been to Mexico or Spain, but they had the firsthand experience of interacting with the proficient um, Spanish or French speakers. I would like to emphasize what Marisa and Krista just uh, mentioned, the asset or strength-based approach when we work with refugee students and families. Most of the time we tend to see refugees, students and, and families under a deficit, a deficit lens, saying that you are limited English proficient people, and they they understand that they lack something, but they don't value what they come here with. We have a multiplicity of languages that parents and students come with, and for those who did not interrupt their education, they also come with a good luggage of knowledge taught in their own languages, but Sometimes we don't value that in the English classes here in the United States because we focus on English uh, language development. But if we give the opportunity to students to show what they know in the language they know, they may say it better. 
then when we tend to force them to use the language they are trying to learn and, and use in the classroom. We, I just want to share this anecdote by an immigrant. Uh, he was told that you have a heavy accent, heavy English accent. And he just said very humbly, my English has an accent, but my brain does not have any accent. For him, the accent is not a handicap because he knows much more than not knowing how to pronounce English in a better, in a better way. So emphasizing the asset strength base can really uh, jumpstart our interactions and our interventions with students and the families. Our refugees come with a wide range of uh, cultures that can also enrich our our communities with different perspectives of seeing the world. Our refugee students and families come with a wide range of artistic expressions, music, dance, that can also be valued, even though it may not be the hip hop, it may not be R&B, but it is their music, it is their songs, and they can value that and see that they, they are valued in the new environment where they are. They do have a wide range of community support networks, community-based organizations like church organizations. They do have business uh, organizations and, and unions. And going through those community support networks can help us reach better. And also show that we value what they come with, even if it may be different from what we do have here in the United States. It's different, but it's not bad different but not bad. Our refugees also come with a great deal of resilience. And someone before said resilience is the best asset people can come with. They went through a great deal of uh, trauma, a great deal of challenges, but they've survived uh, 10, 15 years in refugee camps. So they know how to handle adversity and they know how to be resilient, to bounce back and recover their personality, but also get on their feet and work to succeed in the United States. They offer a very reliable and dependable workforce in varied sectors here in the United States, in, that, in the healthcare, in hospitality. We find refugees and immigrants there providing very valued services to local communities, but also like languages, even though we don't, they may not come with a strong English skills, they do quite a lot of work supporting interpretation and translations in hospitals, in schools, in other sectors. So those are values they come with, the assets they come with, we just need to, to value them to put them at the front uh, of what they're doing and how we interact with them. Forget about the deficit lens, focus on the asset and strength they come with. They are limited English proficient in the first time, but they do know so many other things in their own languages. And in education, the amount of work we can do in language uh, we acquire here can also be influenced by how much our first language is developed. If I come here with my 
10th grade or 8th grade, but in Kirundi taught curriculum. I know the content. I just don't know it in English, but I know it in my language. So if we can give them the opportunity to express themselves in the language they understand, probably with translations for teachers in the first time in the classroom, that can make them feel like we can start and we can build on what we know, what we come with and learn English and be better with time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for emphasizing those assets and the, the funds of knowledge, the talents and the resources that refugee students and families bring to our communities. As you said, Henry, it's so incredibly enriching to our schools and to, to this country to have a variety of voices and perspectives and languages and cultures and skills and talents. I mean, it's, it's really, it is the strength of, of living in this multilingual country. And unfortunately, in many spaces, that deficit perspective pervades. But we as educators committed to getting to know refugee students and families can take that asset-based approach and we can use all the language tools available to us to talk with students about their interests and their talents in their native languages and their home languages. Um, but I also think that uh, there are so many ways that you've you also highlighted the, the other talents and skills that our students have that are not language-based at all. Um, you know, the music, the dance, the sports, the artistic sensibilities, um, the cooking skills that families have, the gardening and agricultural skills that families bring, uh, the mathematic and scientific knowledge. Some of the students that I've worked with have incredible problem-solving skills. Having come from camps where, as you said, Henry, sometimes 12, 15 years, they've been growing up in a space with few resources. They're very good at taking things apart and fixing them and putting them back together. And it requires no language, no English language ability to do those sorts of things. So I think part of our challenge as educators is to create those opportunities that are not language based, that allow students and families to shine and that allow us to see all of their talents and all of their assets, to create spaces where they can dance, to create spaces where they can build maker spaces, to create spaces where they can lead. All of that is so important. And I just, I'm very grateful to each of you for highlighting that as well as highlighting the true strength it is to be multilingual and to lift that up within our schools, within schools that are often monolingual spaces, right? To shift those monolingual mindsets. Um, I want to turn the conversation just for a minute to think about the challenges of getting to know new students and new families. We've been talking about all of the great work that you do, that each of you lead um, in your schools and in your districts, but we know that it's not easy, right? We know that there are time barriers. We know that there are staffing constraints. We know that we can't always get the language line. Um, we know that our resources that we have may be inadequate. So, so there are lots and lots of challenges that educators have to commit to overcoming to really spend time to get to know each every individual student and family. And I wanna just spend a little bit of time here talking about why. So people have been listening to this and they're, they're maybe feeling fired up, maybe they've got some new strategies and maybe they're gonna go back to their school tomorrow and propose something and be told, no, we don't have money for that. 
or no, that that doesn't fit into your job description, or maybe they go back to school and it's a very busy day and they have no time for it. So what's the why? Let's give people the why for doing this work. Why should everybody in our schools, in our districts, in our communities commit to this assets-based approach and commit to getting to know refugee students and families one by one individually for their own talents and their own aspirations? Why do we do this work? It's, it's very important to do this work of getting to know refugees, students, and families, because as I said, knowing someone by name, knowing someone by his uh, hidden face of the challenges they face, knowing someone in his fears and concerns gives him uh, the internal uh, power to know that someone knows them with their challenges, with their fears, with their preoccupations, but also will be there when they need them to support them, uh, go over the fears they have, the concerns they have. That why I said being present when they need us most is really very critical especially in the first days of resettlement in the United States or everywhere else. And we also know that the trust, the relationship building we have over time makes it easier to work with refugees and families. When they trust you, when they know you can build very good relationship with them, getting to learn about their cultures, about their languages, you build that rapport, that confidence to feel that they can work with you. They can volunteer information about what you need to know. They can volunteer to participate in school activities because they know you understand them and they can value, they can trust that kind of relationship. It also helps us to, to most of the time we call them refugees, students, refugee families, as if it is a label. That's just an immigration status, but we should know they are different. They are refugee as a status, but as individuals, they are very different. Two Burundian people don't think alike. Two uh, Swahili-speaking people don't act alike, don't learn the same way. So knowing them is being able to see that diversity. Even though we label them as refugees, they're very diverse in cultures, in languages, in skills, in assets they bring. So valuing them as individuals and uh, showing them that they are different, but not unable, make them be part of our solutions, not be part of the problems. We tend to see them as deficient. Program-wise, uh, knowing them by name, knowing them by background, it also allows us to develop needs-based interventions we have to respond to the needs of the people we serve. We should not come to the classroom as know it all. I will teach you, I will tell you, just sit and listen. No, we should 
uh, make sure that we are responding to the needs they have in terms of language acquisition, in terms of social emotional needs, in terms of responding to the trauma they experienced before coming here, based interventions upon the needs they have and also the knowledge you know, you have about what they have, what they don't have, and build your interventions appropriately. There is also, uh, I think for teachers, it's very good to know, to know who you teach and how to teach them more than knowing what to teach. I sat in the classroom where teachers were very knowledgeable, scientifically very accurate, but I didn't learn much. Why? Because I didn't feel that was my space. I didn't feel that was my learning, my learning space, my safe space to learn. I didn't feel valued and I didn't learn. So it's really very important for teachers, for administrators to get to know who they teach, the child in front of them, not see him as just another additional problem because they don't understand what they teach, but to see them as like a garden, a garden where you can cultivate, you can water, you can plant, you can harvest according to what you planted, not according to what you wanted to get as a result. And I also want to end this with a very wisdom uh, sentence my professor said when we were learning in our master's program for teacher education. She said that students don't really care what you know until they know that you care. I still go by this wisdom of this professor. As soon as I know you care about me, I will care about what you know, and I will be ready to learn and, and, and advance. Thank you so much, Henry. I think we're all, we're, we're all absorbing the wisdom and, and we're, uh, yeah. I think Marisa's ready. Are you ready to add something? Uh, Henry, that's just beautiful. <laughs> I love what you, what you said. Um, so Julie, you asked why, why are we uh, educating our refugee students? I always see myself as a refugee student. I see the, I see them in me or I see myself in them. Um, I grew up in the Philippines in poverty and my family, my, my maternal grandmother, she died without learning how to read and write. My mother did not finish high school and my aunt didn't, went to high school when she was 28. And so I felt like this education is so elusive to my family. <laughs> and I know how important education is. I, I believe that when we educate a refugee student, we educate the entire humanity. Um, and why I know that? Because I know I, as a symbol of my student, I have a lot of needs. I have a lot of needs. But once I get that education, I was able to use my positionality to help others. Um, and so I can, I, I am doing this because I know that it can be a lever for, for change, or uh, I would like to be the change I wish to see in this world. Um, 
And I, that's my mantra. Wherever I go, I tell that my students, uh, I'm here and there's a reason why you're in my class. And I know you will succeed. And if you don't succeed, we'll figure it out why. And, and to me, it's, it's important. It's important with, we do this work. It's important for us to use all the resources that we have and we use our position, our, our power. And I feel like I do have a lot of power now that I'm educated. I know where to find resources. I know how to get all these things. If I connect with this resource, if I connect with this person or that organization and I put them together, I know that I can help my students. And I know that when these students, when my scholars, refugee scholars, I call them scholars in my classroom, uh, when new scholars are in high school or in college already, this is what you're going to do because you know what? This is my 28th year of teaching and a lot of my students are already lawyers, doctors. And so I see you as another batch of students who will be leading our country. So see yourself as a leader because you are capable. You can do it. And if you think that you can't, well, you know what? You need to talk to me again. <laughs> and I'll tell you again and again that you can. So you have your eyes, you have your nose, you have everything that you need. Look at those people who don't have everything, but they were able to succeed. And I'm here. Whatever you need, I can support you. And that's why my students don't hesitate to come to me. They're asking me uh, questions about how to fill this out or how do you do this? I'm always there for them to respond to questions. Um, and I also, you know, I feel like I use my position now to, to, to build coalition. I invite teachers to do professional development. When I heard about Refugee Educator Academy, I, I, I applied for a job as an assistant principal, but I, I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do this because I feel like I need to know more about how to serve my refugee students. Because if I know how to do this, then I can impact the whole community. Because the refugee students are always here. They are here and they're going to come. And, and we need to provide a system that we can use to, to, to help them. I do, I do feel like we have like an ethical obligation as educators um, and you guys probably have the same experience about two minutes into being a refugee educator, you find that you're an advocate and that you need to be an advocate. And I feel like we're within the system um, and we have to help people navigate it. Uh, for instance, language access, we touched on that earlier. You know, it, it's the law. It's a law that we provide information to parents in their home languages but we don't post it anywhere. So the families don't know this. They don't know their rights unless we, within the system, share it with them. So I think that it's, it is important to use our positions to make sure they're, they're one of the most vulnerable populations. Um, so we have a responsibility and it, it improves your classroom, um, even for students that aren't, aren't refugees themselves. Um, it builds their empathy. It broadens their worldview. It's going to improve our classrooms. It's improving our communities. It's eventually improving our whole country. Uh, it's everybody. It, it, it is really just enriches the fabric of our country and, and down from there. But um, there's no downside to putting in all that, what we feel like it's, it's a lot of time and effort. It, it, there's so much benefit to it. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And it's, I feel blessed to be able to be in this position. 
um, to be able to be a refugee educator. But like I said, it, it is it is a an ethical obligation to help them navigate the system and to use our position, like Marissa said, um, we might take for granted that we know where all the resources are, or we know the rights or, or anything like that, and we need to share that with them. I would like to add to that coalition building because I would say in our, in my school community, I already have uh, colleagues who are my allies. Uh, and I think knowing your allies in your school community can also help advocate for our students. And I find that with my uh, uh, equity team, with our equity team, they are my allies and they continue to advocate. And so if you already have one a colleague in, in the building who is supporting you, uh, build that uh, relationship and form that coalition. Uh, that's the reason why we have this Kent Educators of Color Network, because I would like uh, to build that um, ad advo you know, advocacy group who could um, advocate for our um, marginalized population. And we are building this. It's stronger, stronger. And I know that uh, our students will be uh, successful and many of our students will be there. So we'll be a, a rich, diverse community. Awesome, Marisa, thank you. Krista, is there anything else you wanna add? Yes, I wanted to add, um, it can be overwhelming, but just, just when you're starting out, be patient. Um, start small, uh, build teams. Uh, remember that you don't need to be the expert on everything. Find the experts, connect with them, um, and that's that's going to be the way to do it. So one question that educators often have as you know, refugee students and families, immigrant students and families, other transient and, and marginalized students and families are coming into the classroom throughout the school year. They're not just arriving at the start of the school year. So often educators will have a whole set of activities that they do that first week or the first month of school to get to know students and to get to know their families. But students who arrive after the start of the school year may get left out um, in those getting to know you activities. What are some things that you do, Marisa, in your classroom? And what are some strategies that you support teachers within your district, Krista, to get to know students throughout the full school year as they're arriving? And also the students who arrived in August are different in December and in February. So how do you continue to check in? What are some strategies and tools you use to continue to get to know students throughout the school year? I, I always use an asset-based uh, approach. And so when a new student comes in, I always use my uh, students who have been there for two months or three months to, to be mentors uh, and to, to give tips on how they become successful. So we, we, we get into a circle and they introduce themselves and then they give tips to a new student on how, uh, what helped them to, to navigate and be successful. Um, and so they feel empowered because they, you know, they know that they already have some success and they're helping a new student to become successful. And so I also connect them with, uh, clubs. What clubs do we have already where they can use their talents? So like, uh, I know that a lot of my students love sports, soccer, and I know I co-teach with a soccer coach. And so just knowing that, Hey, we have, we have this or track or cross country. These kids are very resilient. And even if they don't know how to do, they can do a lot of things <laughs> outside the classroom. And so connecting on things uh, that they are good at. Uh, and then um, 
uh, our library, our librarian loves to come to us. And so our li library has a lot of resources. And so um, connecting them to the resources in the community uh, really helps them feel that they're at home. I also like to use maps to show them where the resources are and, and to, um, to introduce themselves. I always look at the map. I use the Google Earth. Say, oh, look, your house is there. Oh, this is very, oh my goodness. There's a lot of things that are growing there or there are so many resources. Tell us about this. And so that's like um, bringing in more um, information and they can educate their classmates about uh, their culture. And so it's really like enriching the classroom every time we have a new student. And it also, it makes the new student feel um, very much welcome and in community with, with the learners. Thank you, Marisa. Krista, do you want to add something? Yeah, when we get, when we get new students, um, what I try to do is go over and have a parent conference that's, that's kind of a private conference with, with the parents at the school so that this, the parents can see the school, maybe get a little tour around, and then that they can have a safe space to really ask any questions that they may have. We go over the logistics, maybe they need before school or after school care, um, the transportation situation. And then sometimes we address cultural needs. For instance, um, I had a Muslim family I was working with that it was really important for them to know that it would be supported for their child to have a, a prayer space um, and then different dietary needs uh, that they would would, would be culturally respected at the school, things like that. And they felt kind of safe to talk in that private setting. Um, and it was in their home language uh, through, a, through a translator. Um, we also do occasional home visits. We do um, twice monthly check-ins, like proactive check-ins to call home um, for the teachers, um, because we always try to do that, you know, the positive communication. But a lot, the reality is a lot of the times um, some of our, our kiddos who don't speak English or Spanish, they're not getting those positive check-ins from the student so, or from the teacher. So, and we always, we always get trained, you know, you don't want the first phone call to be a discipline problem. So we just really try to get in there and uh, make sure that the first communication is a real positive one and a welcoming one whenever they come in throughout the year. So with TUSD, uh, TUSD Refugee Student Services, what we, we currently do to maintain the knowledge we have about students and families, we have presence in 10 uh, high concentration refugee schools and staff members are physically present throughout the year. And we have offices in, in the schools and we offer support to teachers in the classroom. We participate in uh, parent-teacher conferences. We do offer sometimes translation to teachers when they want to communicate with students or families. But we also participate in other meetings where they discuss like interventions like MTSS meetings. We, we participate in those. And we can give our perspective from uh, the refugee perspective what they may not be getting in the classroom, the reasons why they may not be getting that. And we continue providing support to the students throughout the education uh, process. For 
families, we keep contact with them through phone calls. We visit them in, in the homes prior to COVID to share information or just to inform them about available services. Could be food banks, could be clothes, could be supporting them to uh, make a job application or giving them about information about employment opportunities that are available in the communities. Because we believe uh, for parents uh, who are not in school, the best way to support them to support them be able to care for their children and they can care for them when they care for themselves, providing them with resources, providing them with uh, connections to services and they can provide for the homes, they can feel confident as parents that they can educate, they can contribute. So we keep uh, contact with them and keep giving them information supporting them through connections to other service providers. And also um, like this, today I was discussing with one of the school principals who was suggesting that we kind of implement focused, uh, focused group discussions in the schools where we can bring together uh, students with refugee and immigrant background. We communicate with them and the teachers and support staff to hear their perspectives, how they are progressing through education, the challenges they're facing, and we can support with language access if that needs be. The same school principal was also suggesting that we, we organize like parent support forums in the schools, like inviting parents on a given day, going through the systems we use in the schools, uh, informing them how they can better contribute to our work and hearing from them the different challenges they have and how we can support them. So we do a continuous work with them in the schools, but also we keep contact with parents in their communities. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Henry. I feel so enriched. I feel enlivened and empowered to continue this work. And I'm so glad that we'll be sharing this. I, thank you to our viewers um, who've stayed with us and listened to this presentation. We hope that you're walking away with concrete strategies, but also with inspiration and motivation. And I just want to return to where we started early in the conversation, where we were talking about relationships, making people feel welcome, starting on that relational level. And each of you kept coming back to that. And then this coalition building, I really love that phrase that you just used, Marisa. You know, as you pointed out, Henry, there's so, there's so much good stuff happening in our communities. And unfortunately, our schools are sometimes an isolated pocket separated from our communities. And if we integrate with the community resources, we can do so much more in terms of serving the students and families in our schools, but also just in terms of getting to know them in really deep and rich ways. And so going back to that idea of the whole child and the whole family and the whole community, and that the work we do as educators is work with our students, work with our families and work with our communities, not upon them, not for them, but in coalition with them. And I think if we can make that mind shift as public education, I think we're just gonna thrive. I think our schools will thrive. I think we as educators will thrive. I know our students and families will thrive. And um, I'm just very, very grateful for this time with you all today. So thank you for sharing your wisdom, your expertise, your knowledge, 
Marisa, Henry, Krista, thank you, shukran, salamat, urakoze, asante sana, gracias. So grateful to each of you for sharing your knowledge and your experience and all of the strategies and motivation and inspiration for this work. It's so important that we are in dialogue with each other, that we're not trying to figure things out alone, that we're not trying to do the work alone. As we've talked about, the relationships, the teams, the coalitions matter. So I invite everyone who's been watching to join our community of practice at the Refugee Educator Academy with the Center for Learning and Practice. We have a Facebook group, which you are welcome to join. You can also email me. My email will be posted um, for you. So reach out, join our community of practice, join the dialogue. There are lots of organizations nationally that are focused on refugee and immigrant education. Reach out to them. There are educators of color networks. Um, Marisa leads one in Washington state. They're all over the nation as well. There are immigrant and refugee educators in our schools and in our districts that we can connect with and support in their work and learn from. So find your allies, as Marisa said, join with us in this work. Thank you for the efforts that you're making to get to know students and families. As we started at the beginning, it's so important. It is the foundation of everything that we do in this work, which is relational, which is based on relationships and connection. So again, Marisa, Krista, Henry, thank you all so much. I wish you each a very, very good evening.